Hello again, and welcome to Precisely, a precision medicine podcast brought to you by Systems Biology Ireland. Today's host is Professor Jonathan Bond. Jonathan leads a pediatric leukemia research program between SBI and the National Children's Cancer Service at Children's Health Ireland at Crumlin. He is joined today by two colleagues from the pediatric hematology field here in Ireland, Professor Owen Smith and Dr. Pamela Evans. Owen, of course, is a well-known figure in the childhood cancer space in Ireland, having held several clinical and research appointments in this area. And Pamela is a consultant in hematology in CHI, where she's also the clinical lead for the CAR-T service. With that, I will hand it over to you, Jonathan. Thank you, Marianne. Thanks very much to Pam and Owen for speaking today. So, Owen, I might start with you. So just thinking about where we are at the moment, I think it'd be useful to take a step back and maybe think about how we got to where we are today. So do you mind giving us a brief overview of how childhood cancer treatment and in particular leukaemia treatment has changed over the past few decades? If we go back to the 1940s and 50s, basically every child or adolescent with cancer would have died within a number of weeks of having that diagnosis. I suppose the seminal sort of moment came in Boston in 1948 when a chap called Sidney Farber and his group invented the first drug to be uh, used in children's uh, leukemia, which is the commonest cancer in children. So what they did was they showed that by giving a drug intravenously to children, they could push the cancer into remission. This was the first time ever this had happened in children. And then over the next 10 to 15 years, I suppose, other drugs started to come out like steroids and like vincristine, etc. So by the beginning of the 60s, mid 60s, we were starting to pull these drugs together, use them in combination and give them to the children. And what we were experiencing were episodes of remission, And those episodes of remission were getting longer and longer as these particular trials were beginning to to happen. But ultimately, all of these patients would ultimately die from relapse over several months. Now, I began sort of from a personal point of view, got interested in all of this when I was fairly young because um, a first cousin of mine was brought into Temple Street Children's Hospital Mm -hmm. in 1966. And... um, Like what was the norm for the day, what happened was that he was brought in, put into a different ward. He was diagnosed with this leukaemia from a blood count and there was no treatment. And basically he was given intravenous fluids, morphine, and he was dead within two weeks. So that left a real sort of mark on me in relation to leukaemia and the biology and the treatment of leukaemia. So then in the 70s and the 80s, people began to get smarter in relation to developing drugs for this, and they combined these drugs. It sort of reflected what we were doing back in the 30s and the 40s in relation to things like TB and infectious diseases. So that combination started to yield very nice results. So we had long-term survivors, and the first real paper to make an impact was in 1971 when the people at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, led by Don Pinkle, published in blood, 50% of these children were absolutely cured from their disease. And indeed, I've met some of these survivors who've gone on to have their own children about 10, 15 years ago. So that's where it all starts. It starts with sort of, you know, trial and error, using different combinations of drugs. But at the same time, it wasn't just the drugs. It was supportive care that we were bringing in, looking after the platelets from bleeding, looking after the infections by giving them antibiotics and giving them red blood cells. So that's where we are now in the sense that we use these combinations of drugs 
And we're now curing around 88% of children in this country with cancer mm-hmm. and the adolescent young adults around 90%. But the problem here is it's at cost and the cost is long-term toxicities. And that's why we need to start becoming more precise, more personalised in our treatment. And the most recent developments in terms of targeted therapies that Pam will be talking about in terms of CAR T-cell and other immune ways to actually offload the toxicities, it really is an exciting time for cancer in children. Just to maybe think about the, the Irish context, so say over the past couple of decades in Ireland, how would children with blood cancer have been treated? How were those treatments decided? So back in 2002, we decided that we would uh, collapse the four cancer services. Mm-hmm. That was in Cork, Galway, and two in Dublin into one. And that is now uh, the National Cancer Service at Crumlin. And so all patients now in this country are treated on clinical trials. Mm-hmm. And this is really the the benchmark of treating children. We need to know, because we're dealing with small numbers and we can't do it on our own. We have to get into an international uh, setting. And so most of our clinical trials are based on either pan-European, pan-Irish UK or pan-global. And we, we, we have some trials open that, you know, looks at children in North, South America as well as North America across the European Union, etc. So every child and adolescent young adult should be given the chance, if they're diagnosed, to be on a clinical trial because a clinical trial protects you and gives you the best results. So normally, 99.9% of the time, when a clinical trial is actually closed, it's usually better than the previous clinical trial in terms of outcomes. So that's the mantra, that's the paradigm that we need to keep mm-hmm. chanting going forward. Absolutely. And could you expand a bit more on the, you mentioned the combinations that Farber and Pinkle would have used. How much would they have changed over the years? So they haven't really changed that very much until about 10 years ago, I would say. We were still, and we are still using all of these drugs in what we call the backbone chemotherapy. Mm. And we are getting smarter about using those drugs as well. We don't need to go so high with some of them, and we can drop some of them as well. And what has informed that is developments in molecular biology, especially in tracking, say, the leukemia in the bone marrow that you cannot see down the microscope, we can use molecular biological tools to chase or to track that leukemia using what we call a polymerase chain reaction assay or indeed a flow cytometric assay. Mm-hmm. And so we know from the Pinkle story that 50% were cured. We were using those drugs, say five or six drugs back in the 1960s, early 70s, and we were using them over three years. So 50% of those mm-hmm. children are probably not requiring all of the drugs that we're giving today. And one of our clinical trials, the UCAL in Ireland, 2003, really showed that very nicely. We felt that we were over-treating around 50% of patients. Mm -hmm. And we asked that question, can we drop some of this chemotherapy? Because the longer you live after finishing treatment for acute leukemia, the greater the chance you will develop side effects going forward into adulthood and later life. So that particular trial helped us really define through using new technologies that we could drop some of the chemotherapy. And indeed, for some of the other patients, we could escalate the treatment. Those patients Mm -hmm. who we saw a signal in their bone marrow that was showing continuing treatment. So this fusion of new technologies with newer treatments has really come to the fore in the last 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. And now, as Pam will talk about, 
a lot of the newer drugs are much more gentle on the immune system and the bone marrow, so we can get the same amount of efficacy or children and adolescents cured, but with less toxicity. It's really an exciting time. Absolutely. And I just ask a question about the, the monitoring. So you mentioned the very sensitive tests like um, PCR and the flow cytometry. So that's um, MRD or measurable residual disease. Could you speak a bit about how that works and why that makes a difference? So that really works because we, when we started the, this back in 2003, we were using a really sensitive assay, as you say, Jonathan, the PCR reaction. And a lot of the parents at the time were asking the question, well, if you're telling me, Dr. Smith, that we can cure 80% and you want to drop some of this treatment, how confident are you that this treatment will, lowering the treatment will work for the same number of patients? Well, we weren't. We had to cross that bridge. And it turns out that that particular uh, measurable residual disease has turned out to be the most prognostic factor especially in the leukemias, where we're absolutely reassured that by getting that signal, a favourable signal, we can drop treatment mm. and more precisely treat the patient and hopefully less toxicity going forward. Because I, I think we often talk about, when we talk about precision medicine, we talk about finding new treatments, but actually the detection and monitoring, I think, is something that's really central in leukemia. Absolutely. So you cannot have precision medicine without precision diagnostics. So precision diagnosis, we're really coming to the fore now about redefining not just how we monitor the leukemia, but also the different types of tumours and the whole area of molecular diagnostics in genomics is telling us that when my cousin Derek died from acute leukemia, he was just branded as acute leukemia, but we know there are multiples of subtypes from a molecular point of view that we can target much more precisely going forward. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thanks very much. So in terms of the new treatments, I might come to you, Pam. If the immune system is a very exciting area in cancer at the moment, could you talk a bit about how the immune system is being used to treat uh, childhood blood cancers at the moment? Um, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. I suppose the, we're, we're living through uh, a cancer immunotherapy revolution at the moment, but the concept of using the immune system to fight cancer isn't something new. Um, I think it dates back to William Cooley, the father of immunotherapy, who made the observation in a sarcoma patient who got an erysipelas, a skin infection, after the tumour was resected, that they that patient managed to clear that tumour very effectively. So then in the 1950s, the idea of immune surveillance um, was, was published, and that kind of led the way to using the immune system itself to target cancers and, and leukemia. I think it was in the 80s then that we had our first monoclonal antibody, rituximab. You know, we, we still use it all the time in the treatment of B-cell uh, hematological disorders. And that really then paved the way to really developing the immune system as a way of treating, treating cancer. I suppose when I think about immune therapy, the ways that we're using it at the moment, we either use the immune cells themselves like T cells or NK cells and try to make them wiser, try to make them better at seeing the tumour, give them glasses to be able to see the tumour better. That's one approach and we have, uh, we're developing uh, ways to do that to make the immune system itself, the immune cells uh, wiser and uh, able to see the tumour better. And then on the other hand, we are finding ways to unveil the tumour better. Tumours are very good at, at sending deceptive messages to the immune system and telling them that they belong to the, the normal, belong as normal cells within the body. And that's one of the ways that they evade the immune system. 
So we have different subcategories then of immunotherapies, um, uh, whether they be the immune cells them, targeting the immune cells themselves or whether they be targeting the tumour. So for the tumour, we have checkpoint inhibitors. And I suppose checkpoint inhibitors, just to describe that a little bit more, T cells or immune cells uh, talk to uh, cells within the body at different checkpoints, mm-hmm. uh, but the, the tumour can tell the immune cells that they belong there, that not to kill them. Uh, and we're finding ways to overcome that with checkpoint inhibitors. Um, and then there's all of the uh, ways to augment the immune system itself, the immune cells themselves. Uh, so one of the ways we can do that is through CAR T-cell therapy. Um, uh, uh, and that's a therapy that we're using uh, more and more now uh, in the treatment of dif- difficult-to-treat leukemias in, in, in pediatrics. And CAR T-cells. So for the audience, could you just explain what a CAR T-cell is, please? So it's a way of genetically engineering T cells and making them express a receptor that doesn't exist naturally, um, but it is uh, it incorporates an antibody so uh, that the T cell can actually seek out a particular target within the body. And in the case of uh, B cell leukemia, targets out one of the B cell markers on B cell leukemia specifically, um, and it uh, eliminates those B cells. So the T cells, where do they come from? Currently, all of the licensed CAR T cells uh, come from the patient themselves or uh, are autologous. Mm-hmm. So uh, just to explain the scenario, mm-hmm. if you have uh, a patient who has uh, uh, relapsed leukemia, B cell leukemia, uh, and you want to treat them with CAR T cell therapy, you must first take T-cells from the patient, a little bit like going through a dialysis procedure where the T-cells are removed uh, and those T-cells are then taken away to a manufacturing uh, site uh, and they are genetically modified to express uh, an antibody that will target B-cells. During that time period, it's about a four to six week uh, time period for the manufacturing process, um, the patient still has leukemia, so that has to be managed in the hospital site uh, with ongoing treatment uh, tailored to the uh, aggressiveness of the leukemia at that time. Uh, and then those cells are returned frozen um, uh, and they are reinfused back into the patient. Um, uh, they now have their glasses on. They've now been genetically modified. They're more better able to home to B cells uh, in a way that they weren't able to before. That's how they affect their function. Um, and we have found uh, uh, that the outcomes with that therapy are far better than uh, expected. Um, uh, So in the most difficult to treat relapsed or refractory B-cell leukemias, we're seeing that with that therapy alone, given once, uh, that we are seeing durable uh, remissions um, in over 50%, in up to 50% of cases. And that would be compared with, if they didn't get this treatment, what would be the, the outlook? The licensed product that we have available at the moment is called Tisogen Leclusil or Kimrea, uh, and it is licensed for uh, those patients who have uh, had a second relapse of their leukemia or have relapsed after a bone marrow transplant um, or who are ineligible for a bone marrow transplant for whatever reason. So for a significant proportion of the patients we've treated, uh, they have relapsed after transplant. Uh, And when I started as a consultant only five years ago, for those patients, there wasn't any other alternative option, uh, just best palliative care. Uh, So in those five years alone, I have now been able to uh, offer uh, patients not just a life prolonging palliative care treatment, but a uh, a treatment that uh, has 
allowed them a, a, a cure. Uh, I know cure is a very emotive word, but a, a durable remission in more than half of the cases. So this has completely transformed the outlook for, for children with these, with these hereditary cancers, I suppose. And just to um, maybe give some background for the audience as well, I suppose, are we using these treatments in Ireland at the moment or do patients have to go somewhere else to get the treatment? There was a time where uh, we uh, didn't have the uh, capacity to treat patients here, but we we, we do now. So we, we treated nine patients. I was thinking about it this morning. I think we've treated nine patients so far over the last four years. So numbers are small, but I mean, the outcomes uh, have been really, really remarkable. Um, uh, we only have one product available at the moment. It is a Novartis uh, pharmaceutical product. Um, we what we don't have or where we are behind, I suppose, is that we don't have access to academic cars mm-hmm. uh, in the in the setting of pediatrics here in Ireland. So maybe to compare to Great Ormond Street, for example, they would have access to the licensed products, but they would also have their ongoing academic car program as well, which. Um, uh, is of huge benefit if, for example, you wanted to uh, treat a child with uh, CAR T cell therapy, but they were, for whatever reason, ineligible for the licensed product. Okay, so that sounds like an advantage. So is the main advantage of academic uh, CAR T cells that you have more options? Are there any other advantages to having that kind of service? You certainly have more options. The whole process of manufacturing a CAR-T product is being refined and developed uh, very, very quickly. Mm. Um, So, for example, the licensed product targets just one uh, CD19, so one target. uh, And one of the challenges or one of the reasons why we don't see durable remissions in all patients is because those CAR T cells don't persist. So lack of persistence is a reason for failure of the therapies. Um, uh, and uh, academic CAR products are being, one of the ways that they are being refined is by having uh, dual targets uh, to improve persistence. Also, it gives options for other types of uh, leukemias. So, for example, CAR-T therapies for acute myeloid leukemia are being developed in academic centres, ways to manufacture the CAR-T product much more quickly, which is really important in the paediatric setting. So, intention to treat outcomes are really critical in paediatrics because leukemias are explosive they come back very quickly and children can uh, not survive those four to six weeks manufacturing period so you can be a lot more nimble if you're actually developing uh, CAR T therapies to uh, target the areas of need that we see not just for uh, b-cell acute leukemia but other types of leukemias uh, also. Maybe to go a bit more into the the science of CAR T so this is a, a chimeric antigen receptor, so maybe you could just explain what that means. And I always wonder about the different parts of a CAR T cell and how that works. It seems like an, an engineering problem in a lot of ways to try and get the signaling to to work at the optimum level. Could you give us a bit of background on that, please? I suppose the T cell receptor in itself is fascinating and it is all about engineering and it is all about manufacturing and, and trying to make this new T-cell receptor as like the T-cell receptor in the body, but also to enhance it a little bit. So the first generation of CAR-T therapies didn't work very well, um, and it wasn't really sure why, why, why they weren't working very well. Uh, but it quickly became uh, clear that they were missing their co-stimulation. Mm. Um, so second generation CAR-T 
T cells then now combine the co-stimulatory uh, signal as well. So they're much more akin to an endogenous T cell receptor. Um, a T cell receptor doesn't normally have an antibody attached to it. That's the role of a B cell. So that's why it's called a chimera. So you're mixing some elements of a B cell with a T cell. A little bit like when we talk about monoclonal antibodies, they work very well. But now you're just attaching them to a T cell receptor and you're actually bringing the immune system in close proximity with the, with the tumor cell. To follow up on something that you were asking there in terms of pharma versus academic cars, I think there's an important issue here in the sense that um, there are several toxicities related to CAR T-cell therapy, like any novel therapy and like any other therapy, there are toxicities. Mm -hmm. One of the big toxicity for CAR is financial toxicity. It's incredibly expensive to get these cars made by a pharma company and the taxpayer incurs the cost of that. So the whole thing, as Pam was saying about it, the stuff at UCL and Great Ormond Street and uh, in London is their academic wing, they can produce cars at a tenth of the price mm-hmm. of the pharma car. So, you know, again, for the listeners, really, we would love for, um, you know, universities, academic institutions in this country to come with us on this journey because these cars are not going to stop at cancer. Mm-hmm. They're going to go into other chronic diseases, especially immune diseases, uh, mediated immune diseases like juvenile arthritis in children, etc. Lupus now has been targeted by CARS as well. So again, it's bringing the academia with the clinical together in an academic health science construct to really produce this novel therapy moving forward. Yeah, and just to think about how that can happen, because it seems to me there's a lot of challenges. There's the scientific challenges, there's the challenges of scale. How do we go about approaching that in Ireland or on a wider field? I think, again, it's it's a great question. And the way you do it is you marry the, the clinical with the pharma people. They're out there. You can't ignore them. They're out there and we have to bring them in from the cold as well as with the academics. Because most, most of CAR-T that was developed through pharma came from academia. As you know, if you look at yeah. Philadelphia, et cetera, or Great Ormond Street with UCL. So it's that combination of bringing pharma, academia, and the clinical sort of expertise together in this country to produce more of these novel therapies for our children, adolescent, young adults, and even into the adult world. And there are conversations that have to be had. And I would imagine through people like Colm Henry and his group at the HSC, and also through Robert Watt in the Department of Health, with the academic uh, folk and the pharma folk. You cannot do this in isolation. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And just to maybe... Uh, respond to people who might say, well, in Ireland, we're very small. We don't see too many patients with this disease. Can we contribute to these efforts? Oh, totally. I mean, we're small in the sense that paediatrics is small. If you look at paediatric cancers, it's only 1% of all cancers, adolescent, 1% of all cancers. But as paediatricians and Pam is involved, I'm involved, we're involved in international collaborations and consortia. So we work really tightly together across the, the, the world as well. But we can do it in-house. We can do lots of things in this country. We should be ambitious and, uh, you know, go for it. I was interested, you were talking about the the manufacturing process for, for CAR-Ts and we spoke a bit about some of the, uh, maybe the financial challenges and the logistical challenges. So are there other ways of attacking the immune system? It seems kind of a bit cumbersome to do all this, these efforts with um, cells. Are there other ways of getting around this? 
So it is very cumbersome to use a patient's own cells and there are time limitations um, uh, and it is very costly and it's very bespoke. So how to make uh, an off-the-shelf product? Uh, and that is something that is being uh, looked at. Uh, again, there are challenges with that, but there are whole swathes of researchers trying to accomplish an off-the-shelf CAR-T product uh, in various different, uh, for various different uh, diseases. But I suppose, are there other ways, coming back to monoclonal antibodies and trying to refine antibody treatments? So ways to improve that would be to use bi-specific uh, antibodies. Mm-hmm. They're given the title BITES for, for short, bi-specific T-cell engagers. Mm-hmm. So having two antibodies that can attach to two targets within the body and then also to a T-cell. So bringing more of the cells uh, that are needed to engage together uh, in vivo uh, with a product that isn't a cellular product as such. So one that we use all the time uh, in the clinic uh, in paediatrics uh, is a bite called blinatumumab mm-hmm. um, uh, and it attaches to the CD19 uh, target on B cell leukemia and also to T cells and, and it has uh, also been a has really revolutionized mm-hmm. how we treat leukemia. Uh, it comes with minimal toxicity mm-hmm. um, and it's about trying to develop uh, bites in other areas mm-hmm. um, uh, and not just bites but you come along with one acronym you can come along with others. So uh, there are trying to bring NK cells together for uh, the treatment of things like pediatric neuroblastoma, which is also mm-hmm. a very difficult to treat uh, pediatric uh, cancer, mm-hmm. uh, accounts for 10% of cancer deaths in pediatrics. So mm-hmm. uh, in that scenario, NK cells are felt to be as important, if not more important than T cells. So we come to bikes when we talk about uh, trying to engage with uh, NK cells in, in the treatment of things like neuroblastoma, because one of the challenges with CAR T cell therapy is the tumor microenvironment. So when you talk about solid tumors, um, the this immunotherapy revolution and uh, CAR T therapy hasn't really lived out, uh, hasn't really been born out in the setting of uh, solid tumors in pediatrics just yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's trying to find ways to, to overcome the hostile tumor microenvironment. Uh, and it might be that um, uh, other immune, other cells of the immune system, like NK cells, for example, might be more important in that setting. Okay, and the NK cells, so these are the the natural killer cells, I suppose, are kind of like lymphocytes, but they're a bit less sophisticated, I suppose, in how they 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 act, I guess. So, I mean, why do you think they would be better than T cells? Why would they be more effective, or are they more effective, or are they different? I don't know if they are uh, going to be the answer in neuroblastoma. Certainly they are the cells that are in the tumour environment, along with monophages and macrophages, other types of immune cells. I think one of the challenges for um, paediatric cancers is that a lot of them are about disordered development of the immune system rather than, uh, you know, changes, genetic modifications and changes over time that we see in adult cancers. So I think every tumour in every setting is going to need a very bespoke, precise way of treating it that is uh, re- that really takes into consideration the pathophysiology of the, the tumour itself. Mm-hmm. So I think possibly one of the challenges with neuroblastoma is that it is a disordered developmental defect rather than, uh, uh, you know, acquired mutations as such. It has, uh, in fact, it has, a, it's one of these cold tumours. It has very few mutations in actual, in actual fact. 
for neuroblastoma, I believe there's been some advances for CAR T cells in neuroblastoma now and they work quite well. Is that right? Again, the kind of the first generation CAR T uh, therapies were actually developed, I think, for neuroblastoma um, uh, because one of the markers on neuroblastoma is a glycolipid called GD, GD2. So it was thought that developing a CAR T specific for GD2 would work very well in neuroblastoma, but the first generation CARs just didn't work very well. But yes, like there have been, again, refinements in the manufacturing and the engineering and the ways that the, T, the, that the CAR T cell is being uh, T-cell receptor is being refined, has improved significantly that field. So it is it is definitely uh, developing. Okay, uh, that's very interesting. Um, so I might just come back to um, the bites you were speaking of, sublinitumumab. I mean, the clinical results seem to be pretty spectacular and it's transforming the t- treatment, not just for children, but even for adults with leukemias as well and really dramatic results and very poor risk leukemias. Um, I'm just wondering, Owen, how you think about adding blinitumumab to the current therapy. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, nearly everyone is cured with these commoner types of blood cancer. How do you change the treatment? How do you make it different when you already have something that works? Yeah, it's a really great question and it's a difficult one to answer because, you know, each clinical trial, um, by the time you get it started, you've actually spent about five to seven years developing that new clinical trial. And what's happening now at the moment is that a lot of these novel therapies like blina and inatumumab are coming through from single types of studies saying that the efficacy is fantastic. And so we are caught in a position where we know that the present protocols have got a listing of toxicities with a certain efficacy, whereas if we can add in the blinitumumabs and take away some of those toxicities, we should be doing that as fast as possible. Doing that through a proper clinical trial sort of forum can be difficult from the regulator's point of view, but I tell you, this is happening now more and more. So we're going to have to change our concept about clinical trials, about changing like horses in midstream now. We're going to have a backbone and we're going to add into the backbone, like the current trial, the Altogether 01 trial, is that there's a lot of pressure on us now to change. What's, what's the Altogether 01 trial? The Altogether 01 trial is a pan-European trial and it involves 14 separate countries across the European Union. Ireland is one of those. And so we are now reaching out. We're going to be recruiting, are recruiting, over 2,000 patients per year. So it's a fantastic platform to do proper clinical trials and add in novel therapies like you're suggesting, uh, um, Jonathan. And really, this comes back to something I said earlier on, is we really need to challenge what we mean by cure in children. And cure should not be just that old paradigm of how many children are alive after five years. It should be how many children and adolescents are alive and well after five years, 10 years, 50 years. Because we know cure, in commas, uh, in quotes, comes at a cost and that cost is toxicity. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole new area of medicine now called survivorship medicine that we're beginning to see there's over 8,000 survivors of childhood cancer living in Ireland and we're not really fully equipped to sort those patients out in relation to their toxicities. So coming back to the precision aspect, we need to be more precise about how we actually cure um, because those survivors need better quality of life 
And how we get a handle on that is not just reducing the toxicity of the drugs we give, but we need to pull out those patients who are more likely to develop a toxicity. And we can do that by looking at the germline genome of patients individually who are going to get the bone disease, who are going to get the brain disease, who are going to get the cardiac disease. So this is more precise. So precise medicine, precision medicine in cancer is not just looking at the somatic or the cancer genome, it's looking at the germline genome as well and fusing that together to really deliver precision cancer care for children and adolescents. I was having an interesting conversation with somebody recently where another haematologist, they're making the argument that maybe from the toxicity point of view that in some way, haematologists and oncologists are too obsessed with getting a remission early and delivering the treatment, and they needed to change their mindset in terms of how the treatment journey might happen. What do you both think of that? I can see where that's coming from, mm. because if you look at one of the commonest toxicities we see, especially in girls, especially in young adolescent girls, is a, is a toxicity called avascular necrosis of hip. And that's really um, comes from the steroid within that cocktail of drugs that we give upfront early on in the treatment. So avascular necrosis means that the bone dies without, uh, without a blood supply. It's in young people over 10 predominantly and around 10% of girls with acute lymphoblastic disease will get that. So it's a significant toxicity. And we have patients, Pam and myself, the patients coming through uh, Crumlin who've had to have hip replacements or shoulder replacements and things like this. We, we've moved away from toxicities, say, 30 years ago, from life-threatening mm -hmm. to life-altering. So these toxicities are life-altering now, and we just need to get that precision handle again around us. So your question is absolutely very apt. We still don't know how to schedule some of these drugs. Asparaginase is the classic one. Yeah. There are diff different different protocols and steroids as well. But again, that would take hundreds, maybe thousands of patients in a randomized way to say, should we give it within a six-week window or a 12-week window? Mm -hmm. But I think what's happening now is the advancement in immunotherapeutics is we may be cutting a lot of these old drugs out very soon and just going to the immune system to help mm -hmm. us cure with less toxicity. We're probably exchanging the problem for the same problem when it comes to immunotherapies, though. So, for example, if you have a child uh, who's not responding to conventional treatment and they're eligible for plenitumumab, the monoclonal type treatment, they're eligible for CAR-T therapy, the T-cell engineered option, or they're eligible for a bone marrow transplant, which is the scenarios that we're facing now. Which do you choose? How do you find a universal truth as to which is the, the best route to go down? And different institutions are going down different routes, depending on their own clinical experience and their own, own academic cars, for example, and what they have available. So how do we find that universal truth as to which is the best outcome? And also there is much more probably parent and uh, care input into making that decision because we now have to lay all three options on the table. We don't know which is the best route. We may not know for some time. Uh, and trying to weigh up the pros and cons of each of those avenues of, of, of care. So maybe to put you both on the spot a bit, how do we advance that? So we're in some ways limited by the amount of data, I suppose, or the amount of patients that we can't test a thousand hypotheses in in real life, I suppose. So how do we how do we move it to the next level? Do we need better experimental systems? Is it animal models? Are there other ways we can do it? Well, I think right back at you now. It's, it's, if we could identify earlier 
mm-hmm. which is the patient that's going to need the bone marrow transplant, mm-hmm. which is the patient whose tumor is not going to respond to the antibody therapy. Mm-hmm. If we could use academia, if we can use science to identify disease-specific mm-hmm. markers, biomarkers that can tell us which is going to be the avenue of treatment that's required, that would that would be that would be great, Jonathan. You're welcome. <laughs> the science is way ahead of the clinical practice. So again, we have to keep together and work hand in hand with, uh, you know, today's research or tomorrow's cures and really make that happen and make that fusion uh, between um, academia and clinical care. And your post is one of those classic posts that, you know, you've got a foot in one camp and that brings insights both from us in the clinic into the academic world here and UCD and vice versa from here into the bedside in the children's health. So it's that fusion of minds. That's the only way we can get forward. And again, I would sort of just flag when you start to develop these things, you have to test them in a clinical trial setting. You have Mm -hmm. to test that hypothesis. But Pam is absolutely right. So we've got the technologies now. We know how to sort of unravel cancer genomes, germline genomes, and all of the other omic genomes or whatever that we have. And we just need to be able to apply that for the benefit of our patients going forward. I might just ask you one more question to finish, Owen. Maybe could you speak about maybe the biggest pleasant surprise you've had in in, the, in terms of the advances in treatment you've seen over the, the course of your career? Was there any maybe subtype of disease or type of leukemia you thought, we'll, we'll never have a good treatment for this, but now we do? Pam has touched on the B-cell lymphoblastic leukemias who are multiply relapsed or who've relapsed after a transplant. Practically all of those patients actually died within a number of weeks. And now we have a treatment, uh, albeit it's, you know, it's an expensive treatment. These patients can be salvaged and the majority of these patients are going to live going to live. They're going to be cured. I know that's a motive word, as Pam said. The other area that I saw during my career was acute promyelocytic leukemia, where 30 to 40 percent of these patients would die within the first six weeks of being diagnosed from hemorrhage or thrombotic disease. And then we started to treat these children, adolescents, as well as adults, with a combination of chemotherapy, but also a vitamin called Altran's retinoic acid. Mm. And I'm pleased to say now we have dropped all chemotherapy for this type of leukemia and we just treat them with targeted treatment with arsenic trioxide and ATRA. Mm-hmm. And over 95% of these patients are cured without chemotherapy. Mm. So that is really paradigm shift, mm-hmm. really. So CAR T cell targeted therapies for APL and some of the lymphomas as well with CAR T has just revolutionized this whole area. And it's mm. great to have lived through it from total and utter destruction back in the in the 70s and the 80s to now keeping children alive and cured where there was no hope in the past absolutely incredible so maybe we might uh, bring our our podcast to an end and thank you both again thank you Pam and thank you Owen thank you again Jonathan Owen and Pam for joining us today and thank you also to our listeners for your kind attention If you're interested in learning more about what we do here in Systems Biology Ireland, or if you're looking for information on any of our podcast hosts or guests, please take just a minute to check it out on the links in the podcast description below. We hope to see you again in two weeks' time for the next episode. Until then, be well.